Here at Soul Sanctuary, we take a book of the Bible and we preach through it. So we're currently in the book of Mark. We're preaching through the book of Mark. We have been for about the last year. And the way that we do that is we just take a chunk of passages or verses within the book that kind of go all together, and we teach it. We preach it. What is God's word to us in that book of the Bible today, here in the 21st century? Now, we're going to take the next five weeks, as Pastor Andrew noted, to go into a different series, a series we're calling Essentials, exploring the essentials of the Christian faith, or essential Christian doctrine. Here at Seoul, we are a Christian church. Our vision is to be a community of refuge, repair, and rejuvenation, but what does that mean? I mean, everything that flows from us here at Seoul. So let's say our, um, our commitment to international missions been highlighted, or, or the way that we're helping handfuls of Ukrainian refugees settle here in Winnipeg, uh, or the way that our facility is used. I just heard Andrew say, that light fixture might fall. So whatever group was in here yesterday didn't report their light fixture, but this is it. We use our facility. They moved everybody out of the way. You should be good to go. And now if you're really anxious over there, just come over here. It's May long weekend. There's lots of seats in the middle. But the way that we use our facility, all of this flows from our convictions as a Christian church. But what does it mean to be a Christian church? In the day and age of all sorts of, of, of questions and beliefs, what are the essential Christian doctrines that define us as a church community, that define what it means, not just for Soul Sanctuary, but to be a Christian across space, so anywhere in the globe, and across time? throughout human history. And so that's what we're doing. And, and, and that slide that went up on the screen and that they talked about, uh, it gives you a chance to further dialogue, for us to further engage on the subject matter that we're going to present today. Uh, because I get the, the uh, joy of, of preaching about God, you know, that big abstract concept, but that is super essential to the Christian faith. That's where we're starting today, by exploring God. So as you have questions, feel free to submit them and then tune in on Thursday on Spotify or Apple Music or any of those platforms. Just search Soul Sanctuary Podcast and you'll find our subsequent conversation to today. So, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lo- Lloyd theologian, he had stated, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half my time telling them that doctrine is not enough. I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half my time telling them that studying doctrine is not enough. Now, what is doctrine? Doctrine is a, idea, a set of ideas or beliefs. Christianity does not have the market or the cornered market on doctrine. You can have doctrine about anything and everything. The way you cut your grass, you may have a, a, a doctrine of grass cutting. If you're the person who likes the orderly lines or the crisscross kind of hatch, that's a doctrine. You, this is how you do it. For me, it's, it's loading the dishwasher. Like, if you're going to come to my house, you're not going to load the dishwasher no matter how, like, great of a guest you are. You're like, Jordan, I just want to help. I'm like, no, your helping is actually hurting. I have a doctrine, a set of ideas and beliefs about how I load the dishwasher. It's all about efficiency. Anybody, any, any dishwasher loaders with me? You understand. Thank you. And so... We have doctrines. We have sets of ideas and belief. Now, to, what it means to be a Christian, a set of ideas or beliefs surrounding what it means to be a Christian. 
And it's essential that we explore our essential doctrine. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you, you must do this, Christians. You need to spend time doing this. But doing this is not enough. Because for the Christian, it's not about how much you know. It's not about how much you know. It's about how this is lived out in your life. What doctrine should do is inform your mind, but then actually change your heart. To know all the right answers simply isn't enough because Christianity is not a knowledge-only thing. The Christian faith is about how does what we know about God impact our heart and then ultimately manifest itself through our action and through our love for the other. This is what the Christian faith is about. So, yes, we study our doctrine, but no, our doctrine is not enough. Now, I recognize that when I use the word doctrine in the context of a Christian church, it may come with some preconceived notions. It may come with a little bit of baggage for you. Maybe in your past uh, environment, church environment, doctrine was an iron fist or a heavy hand that justified the way that you were mistreated. Maybe for you, doctrine has always been one of those things that you just wanted to stay away from because I just don't want to get too caught in the weeds. Jordan, doctrine, theology, we'll just leave that for somebody else. When I went to to do my master's and I was studying Christian doctrine, uh, as I registered for courses, I remember a handful of really well-natured, good people telling me, Jordan, you don't need that. You you don't need to go study this on a deeper level. And their fear was that when you go and study these things, you get so caught in your head and then you just quit believing it altogether. Jordan, you're going to deconstruct and you're you're not going to be a Christian anymore. And here's what I've come to learn about the study of Christian doctrine. Regardless of what our past experiences are, regardless of what people have said to us, about the pursuit of knowledge of God, is that as I, as I explore it more for myself, as I find myself deeper enmeshed in God's Word, as I find myself reading the thoughts of other faithful Christians who have gone before me, it actually sparks a deeper love of God in my life. And now you might not be there yet, but my prayer is that by the end of this five-week series, you too may be able to say, coming to know God, know God, transforms my heart as I begin to love God, transforms my action as I begin to love others, as the Holy Spirit does a work in me, where I come to evidence love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, where the Holy Spirit is producing His fruit in my life. That is my prayer for you. So, today we come to the doctrine of God. I was reading a book this uh, semester, one of my last required readings for school, and it was a, a book that was oriented towards teachers of theology. I was like, all right, good book for me to read. And the author, a theologian from the States, Adam Nader, says, anyone who doesn't find it strange that he or she should be the one to stand in front of a group of people and talk about God is either deluded or hasn't thought very deeply about what is happening. And so I'd like to suggest this morning that I, I, I've thought deeply about this. I hope I'm not deluded or haven't thought deeply about this. 
It's a little strange for me to stand in front of you and to talk about the creator of the universe. You know what I'm saying? The one who, as Andrew read Psalm 139, knit you together in your mother's womb. But here I am. Because when we talk about God, we all have a mental image or a picture that comes to mind. When I talk about God, maybe it's an experience or a story. Maybe you saw God heal. And when, we, when I begin to talk about God, you think of God as healer. Or maybe when I talk about God, you think of him as provider. Maybe when I talk about God, you think of him as absent or as uh, invisible or as non-existent. Our experiences inform the way that we approach the subject, surely the subject of God. So who is to say who God is? Do I get to stand up here on, on account of my education or on account of a position and I get to tell you who God is? And then you got to take that and apply it to your life one way or another and, and roll with it? Is that who God is? Whoever Jordan says he is? Or is God the God that you've experienced? That your experience of God being absent or of God being healer, of, of God being non-existent or of God being provider, is that the authority in your life? Does that determine who God is? When we speak about the doctrine of God, what are we even speaking about? What do we mean when we say God? Central to the Christian belief is the idea that God says who God is. Central to the Christian belief is that God says who God is. I want to take you to the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to go to chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and read a couple verses, 14 to 17. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his understudy, and he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. First of all, he's appealing to human authority. You trust the people who have told you this, and so continue to follow in it. And he says, and from how infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he appeals to Timothy's overstudies, or, or I mean a bit to himself and to Timothy's mother who have raised him in the Christian faith, but then he goes to the Holy Scriptures and he says, the people who have taught you what it meant to be a Christian actually got their source from the Scriptures. Now when Paul's writing to Timothy, the Scriptures that he's referencing is not the composed New Testament yet as we have it, but he's likely referring to the Old Testament, to the story of God's work throughout the Hebrew people, throughout the people of Israel. Paul continues and says, all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that every man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hey, Timothy, for you to be equipped for every good work. Hey, Timothy, for you to go on about doing what it is we do as ministers of the gospel, the scriptures will be your guide. Central to the Christian belief, to the Christian faith, is the idea that God says who God is as he reveals himself through his written word, the Bible. 
And so our task is to look at the Bible. The, the Sunday school course was going this morning, how to read the Bible, which is awesome. I know uh, Mike was teaching that, and there was a whole class. The, the room was uh, very full, I saw. But to be able to do that, as we're, as we're talking about the Bible, we need to learn how to read the Bible. We can't look at the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts. But rather, the Bible becomes, and we're going to talk all next Sunday about the Bible, but the Bible becomes a story of what God has done and what God will do. Hear me clearly. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not like a religious how-to guide, but it's a story of what God has done and what God will do. And our challenge as followers of Jesus is to find ourselves in the story. What is the significance of this story to me here today? And that's a question that we'll answer next week. The theologian Kelly Capick says, All good and faithful theology comes from God, who is the ultimate theologian, the only one who can, without weakness or misunderstanding, speak of himself. Who gets to say who God is? Surely, as Paul pointed out to Timothy, those who are Christians discern it together, and there's a history of 2,000 years of Christians discerning what the essentials of the Christian faith is. Are, but that comes from God's self-revelation to us in the Scripture. And so then we ask the question, what does God say about himself? What does God say about himself? Come with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. We start together in verse 1. What does God say about himself? Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of, the, of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So, Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. In Exodus 3, God is revealing himself to Moses. What do we know of Moses? I mean, he's raised in Egypt, ends up killing an Egyptian, flees Egypt, ends up kind of in the wilderness, finds a wife in the wilderness, and now is tending sheep. We don't know much of Moses' religious background. We're not told that. Really, the defining characteristic is that, yes, Moses is a, is a Hebrew raised by Egyptians, but that Moses here is a murderer. And then all of a sudden, he has an encounter with the living God through a burning bush. And this bush does not burn up. Moses is intrigued. Fire needs a fuel source, and it needs oxygen. He's like, okay, well, it's got plenty of oxygen, and I think the bush is the fuel source, but it's not burning up. So Moses goes on over. And I think in this brief moment, we begin to see God revealing himself. God is not dependent on a fuel source. God is not dependent on anything. As God begins to reveal himself to Moses through the burning bush, we learn what God says of himself implicitly. God needs nothing to sustain him. God is dependent on nothing. Now, this encounter with God, and maybe as a bit of an aside, our encounters with God are often quite formative for our belief in God. The way that we experience God 
the way that we experience God or have experiences with God, whatever that looks like in your context and in your history, often form what we think about God. And here, this is what's occurring for Moses. Moses doesn't have a framework from, where, from which to work within of God revealing himself to him in such an insane and powerful way. And it becomes formative for Moses as he learns to trust and rely on God as God works in the supernatural throughout the rest of his life. We are going to skip ahead a couple of verses, and essentially Moses and the Lord have their confrontation, and the Lord speaks to Moses in short saying, I see my people suffering in Egypt. I see my people suffering under unjust authority and rule, and Moses, I choose you to go bring them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, and into the land flowing with milk and honey, into the land that I have prepared for them, into a good land. Picking it up in verse 11, but Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. When I talk about God self-defining in the scriptures, this is a pivotal moment for our understanding of who God says that he is. Okay, God, if I go to the people of Israel, and if I tell them you're coming with me, and if Pharaoh is there, and whatever, we can work all those details out, but what if they ask me what your name is? And he replies to say, I am who I am. When he says I am, it's innately connected to the Hebrew verb to be. And without boring you in a, in, in a Hebrew language lesson here, in this moment, what's your name? I am the one who was. I am the one who is. I am the one who is to come. I am the one who has always been. I am not dependent on anything, but everything is dependent on me. God's revelation to Moses in this moment is one of absolute power. It's one of absolute sovereignty. I am who I am. free from formation of any other forces upon me. I'm not required to be anything or anyone to anyone. I exist. I am the fountain of all sources of life. I am who I am. God is the source of his own being, and he is the source of all being. I mean, this is summarized by Jesus in the book of Revelation. So go from the front of the book all the way to the back of the book, and we find ourselves in Revelation verse, or, cha or chapter 1, verse 8, and Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the, the first letter and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Everything you see, I am. I am. I encompass it all. From the beginning to the end, the one who is, the one who is to come, 
I am the Lord Almighty. When we speak of I am, we speak of the grandeur that God has revealed himself to be to Moses. Grandeur. Uh, borderline incomprehensible. Magnitude. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. Verse 15 of Exodus 3, God also says to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I will be remembered from generation to generation. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What's God getting at when he says this to Moses? He's saying, you're going to go into Egypt, and you're going to tell the Hebrews enslaved in Egypt that they know me already. That, that I am the God of Abraham, their forefather, of Jacob, their forefather, of Isaac, their forefather. That when they came into Egypt seeking food, I was the one who orchestrated the whole thing to ensure that, that the people survived. And 430 years later, here they are enslaved. The king has gone over. No one remembers Joseph anymore. But I am that God who has provided for you in the past and who will provide for you in the present and who will provide for you in the future, who will rescue my people from their captivity. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God reveals himself to us in his word as I am. Now, this is not the last time that God speaks of himself. Over and over throughout the scriptures, he's continuing to unravel the mystery of who he is to us. And as we read and as we explore, as we come uh, into the depths of the scriptures, we begin to have a more comprehensive, a more robust understanding of who God is. And so maybe I'll ask, without going through the whole Bible this morning, which we could do, <laughs> maybe by the end of the series we'll make it all the way through. We've been 11 months in the book of Mark. Never mind. But what are God's attributes? What are his attributes? So if God says, I am, I am the one who's preexistent. I am the one who is. I am who I am. I will always be with you. If that is who, how God self-defines, what are his attributes? Theologians break it down generally like this, that God is all-powerful that God is all-knowing, and that God is all-present. To speak of God as all-powerful. You remember that song, for those of you who are church kids, like, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Ah, church kids. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too, or is it skies? Stars, it's stars. The action. The stars are his handiwork too. That's how you know. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. That's right. God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He, we love this part of God. If we're going to serve a God, we want a God who's powerful. Like, I want a God who can save me from my situation. Like, I want a God who, who, who nothing can come up against him. I want a God who is above all other gods. I want a king who is above all other kings. I like this part of God. 
but in God's power, he is also sovereign. And this is what it means to have, to have all power, to be able to do all things. He is sovereign over everything. He makes the decisions. He, he makes the clocks tick. God is all-powerful. We, we have a problem with God's sovereignty. We love his power. We want to worship a God who has all the power, but we struggle with his sovereignty because his sovereignty means that he's sovereign over us. That he makes a claim over my life. We love God in might. We love God in power. But a part of that package is that he's sovereign. I mean, his sovereignty makes us question too. Why do we have war in Eastern Europe if God is all-powerful and all-sovereign? Why do we have deep pain and suffering in our world, in your life? These are the questions that we have to ask, questions that will come up again and again and again as we go through this series that we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on. But when we speak of God's attributes, we speak of him as all-powerful. When we speak about God's attributes, we speak of him as all-knowing. That God has a deep knowledge of everything. In fact, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And for him to be the truth means that he is the standard of what is true and what is false. That who he says he is is the standard of all things true and of all things false. That means there is no reality apart from the reality in which Jesus is Lord. You hear me? Getting a little deeper on the philosophical level here. There is no reality apart from the reality in which Jesus is Lord, in which God is all-knowing. Andrew said earlier, and I love it, the all-knowingness of God means that he knows you. That he knows the depths of your heart. The places that you share with no one. That he knows Finally, when we speak of God, we speak of him as all-powerful, we speak of him as all-knowing, and we speak of him as all-present. Across space, yes, God is present across space, that I can have a relationship with God, and so can you, and God doesn't have to, like, all right, sorry, line two. (laughs) But that we can have this relationship with God at the same time, that he is beyond our creaturely boundaries when it comes to space and time. That God is all-knowing. He says to Moses, you're going to go and I'm going to be with you. That he is present with us. And and perfectly captured. We're going to go back to it. Andrew read from Psalm 139. We read again. Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? When we speak of God's attributes, well, maybe back up. What does God say about himself? I am who I am. I am. I have always been. I will always be. When we speak of God's attributes, we speak of his power. We speak of his knowledge. We speak of his 
presence. What about God's essence? Like, what's he made of? Here we're going to have a little bit of a Trinitarian primer, which is, like, great that we get to do this on my first week in Pastor Jerry's on sabbatical. It's great. Trinitarian Theology 101. We ready for it? You, somebody better say yes. Yeah, we're jacked. We are ready for that Trinitarian primer. What's God's essence? When we speak of God, we speak of God as Father, we speak of God as Son, and we speak of God as Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And maybe even to dial back, when we start talking about the Trinity... I think the, the, the Christian temptation is to be like, eh, we just don't know. We worship a God who's one God and, and he's three at the same time. And it's tempting to do that. I mean, Psalm 139 spoke of the mysterious ways of God. It's not wrong. But I think we first need to root ourselves in the reality that although the knowledge of God is not inexhaustible, we'll never know or is inexhaustible, <laughs> double negative, uh-uh, that makes positive. The knowledge of God is inexhaustible. We will never know the whole of God, but knowledge of God is intelligible. If, if God has revealed uh, himself to us in his scripture, in his word, if he has done that, then we can actually come to know God then we can actually come to speak of God with confidence. That we don't have to tiptoe around the whole Trinitarian conversation, but we can actually say, well, we can acknowledge the mystery of how God relates to himself in three persons. We confidently serve him, present in three persons, but confidently one God. So let's talk about it a little bit. The knowledge of God is inexhaustible, but it's not unintelligible. We'll never know God in all of his fullness. I mean, if we did, if we did, he's not God. If at any point me as creature claims to or does have any full comprehensive understanding of who God is, he is no longer God because we're on the same level. But he is intelligible. If he has revealed himself to us, then we can speak confidently of who God is. What's God's essence? When we speak of Father, as he is revealed himself to us in the scriptures, we speak of one who is fully God. We speak of one who is the creator of all things. I am who I am is what he says. We speak of one who sends his son. Very clearly, sends his son. So, fully God, creator of all things, the fountain of which all things flow, the one who sends the Son. When we speak of the Son, Jesus, we speak of him as fully God, as he's revealed himself to be. Yet fully God who takes on humanity, takes on flesh. We speak of him as the Savior of the world who reconciles every single one of us back to God's created attention, back to the Father's created intention for humanity. It is Jesus who does this work, this salvific work, this saving work in our lives. So we speak of him as fully God, taking on humanity, being the savior of the world. Yet we also speak of him as the one who sends the Spirit. And when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we speak of him as fully God, an advocate and a guide, 
the one who points us back to Jesus. Isn't it interesting that there's no proper name for the Holy Spirit in Scripture? Why is there no proper name for the Holy Spirit? He doesn't get a name like Jeff. (laughs) Why is that? He doesn't get a name because his purpose is not to draw attention to himself. What does he do but reflect us back to our Savior who reconstitutes, reconciles, reconstitutes the relationship, reconciles us with our Creator, God the Father. As Christians, we can confidently speak of one God and three persons. We worship one God, revealed to us in three persons, fully God, each person of the Trinity, each having their own function within the economy of the Godhead, how they interact with one another. Someone should ask a question, and we'll talk about it on the podcast this week, of why is God our Father? That's a great question to ask if you haven't asked it yet. We don't have time to fully get into that yet, but we'll talk about that. What's God's essence? Okay, okay. go to Matthew 28 with me, and your Bibles are on the screen. This is Jesus' last words in the book of Matthew. It's known as the Great Commission. Jesus is sending his followers into the earth to do what? It says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Interesting, big God claim there at the end. Surely I am with you always. Remember back to Exodus. Cool. But what's Jesus saying? As you go out to faithfully represent me, to make disciples to the corners of the earth, go out and make disciples. And as you do that, as people come to follow me, when somebody says Jesus is Lord, when they choose to, to follow me with all their being for the rest of their days, baptize them. And when you baptize them, how do you baptize them? If you were here on Easter Sunday when we had the feed trough out and we were baptizing people, we baptized following Jesus' instruction. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, a baptized Christian, you start in the Trinitarian reality of Jesus. Of God. (laughs) Jesus' command. You start, there are so many pitfalls in the doctrine of God conversation. It's good. Glad I have it. We start our relationship with Jesus, our Savior, our relationship with God, our Father, our relationship with the Holy Spirit, our Advocate, in the Trinitarian name, as Jesus outlined it to be. And so, a lot of heady talk about God, but what's God like, Jordan? What's what's God like? Like, okay, cool, he's got those theological attributes. You can say he's all-powerful. You can say he's all-knowing. What is he like? And here's why this question matters. Because you have a story. Because you have experience with God, and you question, is that what God's like? Because you have pain in your life, and you wonder, is that what God is like? And if I'm going to serve this God, am I serving a God like that? What is God like? In John chapter 8, Jesus has a confrontation with the religious leaders at the time. And they kind of go head to head. 
And Jesus pulls out this line where he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's all he says. Before Abraham was, I am. And the reaction of the religious rulers at the time were to pick up stones and try to kill him when he said this. Before Abraham was, I am. Boom, they tried to kill him. What's the significance of this? And John is doing this right throughout his gospel. He's portraying the divinity of Jesus. He's saying Jesus is a man with us here, but oh my goodness, he's not man, he's God. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is making this claim that roots back to Exodus, and they knew it, and they were so passionate about who God was and how Jesus wasn't God that they were ready to kill him in that moment. In Exodus 3, God reveals himself as I am who I am. And Jesus says, before even Abraham, like, go back to the beginning of time, to the beginning of our recorded history. Before all of that, I am. Have you guys seen that bowling meme, that clip? The guy throws the strike and he's like, you've seen it. Okay. Who do you think you are? I am. That came to my mind. Jesus is like, who do you think you are? I am. Type in like bowling. Who do you think you are? I am. You'll find it. It's funny. Jesus makes a claim to be pre-existent is what he's doing. Getting back on track. And throughout the book of John, Jesus reveals himself as I am over and over and over and over. And when we ask the question, what's God like? Jesus, making his claim to be God throughout the book of John, says this. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. That means he will sustain you physically. He will sustain you spiritually. I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. That means where our God is, darkness cannot be. That our God, his force drives out the powers of darkness. And we see that chiefly displayed in the person of Jesus. I am the light of the world. He says, I am the door. Salvation is in Christ alone. That if we want to go to the Father, God... We come to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. The the forgiving, reconciling blood of Jesus poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He's calling you and me sheep. We're the dumb sheep that wander off in the pasture. But he's, and throughout the book of John, throughout the gospels, the person of Jesus is the one who chases the dumb sheep. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. What is God like? God is the one who ensures that death is not the final word for the one who finds themselves in Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He is the source of all truth. He is the standard of what is true or false. There is no reality apart from the reality in which Jesus is Lord. Everything else is a farce. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All knowledge that we have of God, we understand it through the person of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the true vine. 
you are the branches. That when we are engrafted to Christ, we have life and life to the full. When we ask the question, what is God like? We look to the person of Jesus. Finally, in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and onward. So then, the Apostle Paul says, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith that you were taught and overflowing with thank- thankfulness. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at the person of Jesus. Look at the shepherd who pursues the dumb sheep. The one who overflows with love. Look at Jesus, the one who went to the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. When we think of that for a moment, Jesus going to the cross for the forgiveness of your sins... What we're saying is that God created the world good. We're saying it was a good intention by God that that, that the original purpose of this thing was wonderful and beautiful and the fruit was abundant and the land was ready to harvest, that God created it amazing. And that our sin then separates us from God, but Jesus comes And he says that sin will not be the final word. Sin and death, physical, spiritual. That is not the final word. And I will make a way for my people to be reconciled to their creator. And then we go to the end of the book, this story. And it resolves just like it started. In a garden city. It resolves just as it started. The the people of God in the place that God intended them to be in the presence of God. That's the Christian hope that the end is just like the beginning because of Jesus. When we look to come to understand God, we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, the great physician who came to seek and save the lost, the good shepherd who knows you, the humble servant who came and lived a life of service. The resurrection and the life who reconciled you to God. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song. We're going to sing a song that proclaims the Trinitarian reality of God and how God works together and who God is. The song is called The Creed. And throughout the centuries, Christians have agreed, and especially in the beginning of the Christian movement, we've agreed on creeds. Creeds are statements of belief. They're statements of doctrine. If you're like, "Uh uh-uh, doctrine's not for me, this song, doctrine, is all of a sudden for you. This is Christian doctrine. And we sing it and we proclaim it together. And what we're doing as we gather together in one voice is we proclaim the reality of who God is in Father, Son, and Spirit, the reality of what he's done, and we give all the praise, we give all the honor, and we give all the glory to the one to whom it's due, our creator, God. Let's sing. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating One, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving.
Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious light. Forever seated high. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in you. I believe you rose again. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe, I believe in you. And I believe you rose again. And I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I I believe in the name of Jesus. It's one thing for us to come and to proclaim it. It's one thing for us to come and to learn about it, to hear about the doctrine of God, to hear about the Trinity and how it all hangs together. 
it's another thing for us to do something with it. Maybe the most profound question of Christian theology is, so what? So what? I can know all this, but so what? Here's my invitation for you, Soul Sanctuary. Before my invitation, here's my word for you. God is knowable. He has revealed himself to us through his word. God is knowable. Which means that you can come to know God. And as we continue in this series, my invitation is come back. And if you're gone for a Sunday, that's great. Catch it on the pod. Four more weeks. Next week, we'll discuss the Bible. Why is it that we keep going back to the Bible? Why is it that we keep referencing the scriptures? The week after, we're going to talk about our personhood. Who are we in light of God? And how does sin factor into that equation? The week after, we're going to talk about Jesus and the gospel. And the week after that, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit and the church. How all this hangs together in the doctrines of the faith. What it means to be a Christian. My invitation is for you to engage. For you to ask your questions. And for this to be a place where we can come to know God, the one who is knowable, together. Let's, let's give a blessing. <laughs> I was going to say, let's pray. So sanctuary. In ancient times, the one who gave a blessing extended hands. If you would like a blessing this morning and would like to receive one, would you extend hands as well? Nothing magical, just a benediction, a word for you to live in, a reality for you to live in as you go. Soul Sanctuary, as you go, go in the love of the Father, the one who created the universe out of an abundance of his love and who knit you together in your mother's womb. Go in the grace of the Son, who gave his life as a ransom for all humanity and who shows us what it truly means to live. Go in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who enjoins us to Christ and enables us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received as sons and daughters of God. Be blessed, go in peace, and we'll see you next Sunday.